five, four, three, two. We're not live yet, but we're, I'm just waiting for it to connect and then we get to go inshallah. And go through. Sorry, one second. It says live on my end. Yes, let's see. I'm gonna confirm. Assalamu alaikum. I hope. Um, can anybody hear us, inshallah? Just, uh, just comment if you can hear us. Okay, I think we're good to go. I just wanted to confirm that people can actually hear. Okay, very good. All right. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wassalatu wassalamu ashrafu al-Musaleen. Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Jazakum Allah khair everybody for joining us today in these um, difficult times. Um, I know the, the Muslim community um, have been uh, dealing with um, you know, uh, with, with this issue that is that we're facing today, specifically um, surrounding what's happening in in the black uh, community at large, in in in, uh, in the African American community in, in the United States of America. Um, today, um, you know, we had the we have the honor to have um, a leader uh, in the Muslim community and the African American community. Um, you know, he's one of the co-founders. Uh, of Zaytuna College. He is a pillar in the, in the Muslim community, especially in the African-American community. And he is also uh, the president currently of the Muslim Alliance in North America. Um, before I let um, Imam go ahead, let me just fix the screen. The video. Sorry, it's stuck for some reason. Sorry, and um, this is uh, okay. Okay, now it's good. All right. Um, so, and again, Jazakallah Khair Imam for attending. And for those, uh, thank you for those who are also coming on board. Um, you know, inshallah, today will be uh, a webinar um, for, for us to explain uh, the struggle of our brothers and sisters in the Black community. Uh, today will be a day where we explain uh, what's going on historically what's going on uh, nowadays and the hopes for the future. And Imam Zaid Chakir, may Allah bless him, um, you know, agreed to join us right away given how urgent the situation is. We have, and we are witnessing um, the events unfolding uh, minute by minute. Today we've, we've heard about what 
President Trump announced in terms of martial law. We've seen uh, big cities, metropolitan cities are um, planning uh, to do curfews uh, overnight. Uh, there are some victims that are falling to police brutality. Some racists are taking this uh, this moment to attack um, uh, the, the the black community. Uh, lots of things are happening around the country. So we feel that this is an important moment for all of us to be standing together, uh, specifically the Muslim community, uh, to give a little bit of context to what's going on around us. And most importantly is how can the Muslim community show solidarity to the black community? I know there are some tough questions and there's some tough, tough debates that we've, we have been seeing online uh, regarding uh, anti-blackness in the Muslim community, regarding how we can collaborate and how we can work together with the, uh, with the black community to show support and to support them in this struggle. Because this struggle is not just a, a one day event. This has been going on for centuries. So, with that, be, with that being said, uh, uh, I would like to give um, this to Imam uh, Zaid Shakir um, to start the conversation, uh, specifically around a little bit of an intro on uh, Islam uh, uh, and and the the Black community in the U.S. Then he's going to delve into uh, a discussion on. Uh, the history of institutional and, and structural racism in the US. Uh, later, he's gonna be talking about the current events and hopefully by the end, he will be talking and discussing uh, future plans, uh, not just future plans, but his, his um, you know, uh, how he can imagine the future with the black community and for everybody in the US. And finally, inshallah, we'll be opening the floor for people uh, to ask us questions uh, on the, in, on, in, in the comments section. So without further ado, I would like to give it to our dear Imam, our beloved, uh, one of the pillars of, of the Muslim community nationally uh, to, to, to uh, you know, to start the conversation, inshallah. Uh, Imam, go ahead, please. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala Sayyid al-Mursaleen, Sayyidina Muhammad. uh, first of all, we just want to just check in with everyone and ask, you know, how you guys doing? I know it's been tense. It's been difficult. It's been a very trying week. Uh, and uh, we, we, we need to check in and take some space. If, if you're overwhelmed, get out into the country. Find yourself a nice, quiet place to go read some Quran, do some dhikr. Uh, remember your Lord. Uh, and that's very, very important because if you burn out, you can't do anything for anyone, including yourself. So take care of yourself, brothers and sisters. Stay close to your Quran. All of the uh, answers and insight that we need, they're all there in the Quran. Stay close to your awrad, your adhkar, no matter what the source of is, the ma'thurat of uh, Sheikh Hassan al-Banna, if it's the weird al-Latif of uh, Imam al-Haddad, if it's the... Uh, Imam Suyuti's abridgment of Imam Nawawi's Adhkar, if it's the Kitab uh, al-Dhikr wa Dua from Sahil Muslim, or the beautiful section in uh, the Jami' of Imam Tirmidhi, uh, where a lot of the awrad uh, uh, the, uh, are gathered. Whatever you use, use it in these days. 
because we need spiritual energy to deal with the socio-political challenges before us. We can't separate the two. Uh, Islam has a long history in the African-American community. And in a few minutes, uh, we could say that Islam was uh, in this place uh, that we now call the United States of America before the United States of America was in this place. Scholars like Ab Ivan Van Surama, uh, his most uh, well-known book in this regard, they came before Columbus, establishes connections between West African and uh, Muslims uh, and the native people of these lands long before uh, Columbus and the Europeans arrived here. Uh, during the period of Spanish colonization, Muslims were coming here in large numbers and Muslims were rebelling. And uh, the first uh, revolt in the uh, New World was on the island then known as Hispaniola, uh, which is now the current home of the Dominican Republic and Haiti, the wealthiest colony in the Car uh, Caribbean, a group of Wolof Muslims in 1522 organized and succeeded in uh, the first slave revolt. Uh, and several slave revolts later, the Spanish outlawed the importation of Muslims and then they allowed it, so it was off and on. Uh, the first known Shaheed in these lands was a Spanish-speaking African Muslim, also Wolof, Pedro Quilafo, Pedro the Wolof, who was boiled to death in a pot of oil around uh, 1548 or so for teaching Islam and spreading Islam amongst the native people. And so the history is long during, after Spanish colonization, British colonization in what is now the United States, we have a, a long list of illustrious Muslims, perhaps the most famous is Ayub bin Suleiman, Job bin Solomon, the fortunate slave. And his uh, biography, The Fortunate Slave, is the first, is the, oldest extant work of African-American literature. And so the, the oldest extant work of African-American literature chronicles the life of a Muslim slave who famously was able to be liberated, went to England and had audiences with the scholars at Oxford and Cambridge, had an audience with the Queen, Queen of England and was sent back uh, to Africa as a free man and as an agent of the Royal African Country uh, Company, rather. That's not necessarily a good thing, but it's a, re it's a remarkable story. Shortly after the establishment of the United States, we, we have many remarkable Muslims. Perhaps in that early period, uh, we have uh, Ibrahim uh, Abdurrahman or Abdurrahman Ibrahima, a, a Fulani slave who was called prince because of his regal uh, comportment. And indeed he was a prince. He was the son of Ibrahim uh, Karamoka uh, Alpha, the unifier of the Fulbay people, the Fulani people into a unified Muslim kingdom. And his son was Ibrahim Abdurrahman. And so we have, we have an amazing history uh, during the period leading up to the Civil War. We have several, many illustrious Muslims whose names are known to us. Perhaps in this regard, the most prolific writer amongst them, the one who's written the greatest, uh, left rather, the greatest written legacy, Omar bin Said, 
So right up the, into the period leading up into the Civil War, Omar bin Said was very active in North Carolina, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Ibrahim Abdurrahman in Natchez, Mississippi, Ayub bin Suleiman in Maryland Eastern Shore. And so all over the colonial world and then the newly, liber the newly established United States, you have Muslims. This leading up into the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, you had Muslims such as Omar bin Said and many, many others whose names uh, we can mention. After uh, the abolition of slavery, the liberation of the slaves, uh, the Civil War, the Muslim presence from uh, formerly enslaved people uh, began to die out. But then you had the emergence of several uh, some people refer them as prototypical Islamic movements because they would lead towards the reestablishment of an, if you will, an orthodox Muslim presence. So you had in 1913, Noble Drew Ali establishes the Moorish Science Temple in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, there wasn't a lot of Islam in it, but the reference to the Moor, the reference to the book uh, as the Quran, it wasn't the Quran, it was a mixture of the Bible to Tibetan Book of the Dead and a little bit of Quran all brewed together. But the, the uh, nomenclature, the orientation was towards the Muslim world. And a lot of the terminology was rooted in the Muslim experience. And more is specifically the uh, West uh, Northwest African Muslim experience and the Andalusian Muslim experience. Another brilliant book by Ivan Van Sertema uh, really examines that period, that book being the golden age of the Moor. So uh, the Moor Science Temple is established. Duse Mohammed, uh, who was a mentor of Marcus Garvey, goes to Detroit, Michigan in the early late teens, early 1920s, and establishes the Universal Islamic Society and uh, other organizations and is instrumental along with other uh, figures such as Sheikh Khalil Bezi and others in bringing the Muslims together in a unified force. Dusay Muhammad being a Sudanese Egyptian uh, lineage, he goes to England to study theater. He works with Garvey, uh, he mentors Marcus Garvey who comes to England from Jamaica, when Garvey comes to uh, New York and establishes the uh, uh, UNIA, Uni uh, Universal Negro, is, uh, I'm, I'm having a senior moment, but it will come to me, UNIA uh, Garvey establishes in New York, his newspaper uh, features uh, frequent columns from Louise Little, Malcolm X's mother, so Malcolm X wasn't raised in a household that would orient him towards the path that he took. There were several unfortunate circumstances that were responsible for that, but he was raised in a Garvey's household. Uh, Dusay Muhammad continued his collaboration with Garvey and he's writing a column that's very Muslim centric in Garvey's newspaper. Uh, so the UNI Universal Negro Improvement Association, that's Garvey's organization. So even Marcus Garvey's organization plays a role in orienting the African-American community back towards an Islamic presence. Then you have the rise of the Nation of Islam, initially established by Fard Muhammad in 
Detroit, Michigan in 1930, and then Elijah Muhammad Fard's most prominent student. And many uh, scholars feel that Elijah Muhammad was initially a follower of Marcus Garvey, but he begins to build the nation. Then Malcolm X joins the nation uh, while he's in prison. And during the 50s and early 60s, Malcolm uh, is instrumental in helping the nation to become a, a globally, globally recognized organization. During that, that period though, when you have these, what, what I refer to as prototype Islamic, uh, proto-Islamic movements, you have actually Sunni Muslims, uh, Sheikh Ali Wek, uh, Ekram, who establishes the first Cleveland mosque, comes out of the Ahmadiyya movement, the Ahmadiyya movement uh, led by Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, also who has uh, a presence in Detroit and influence across the Northeast. Uh, a lot of African-Americans joined that movement when the successor of uh, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq isn't nearly as learned as uh, Muhammad Sadiq, uh, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq was, a lot of the followers drift away and began to establish orthodox Sunni uh, communities. And Sheikh Wali Ek Ekram is one of those. And so you have in the 60s, uh, also in the 40s, 50s, you have uh, Far uh, Sheikh Daoud Faisal, who immigrates to the United States from the Caribbean, settles in New York City. Another uh, Car Caribbean immigrant, ma Mother Khadija, his wife, they begin uh, a very active Islamic movement in the New York City area. Uh, from that movement, you have the evolution of the Darul Islam movement, another very uh, powerful Sunni Muslim movement. Uh, you have many, many different uh, Izzuddin village established in Southern New Jersey, a Muslim village. You have Muslim villages in upstate New York. You have a lot of Islamic presence and, and this sort of transgenerational presence of Islam from the slavery period and then into the early 20th century, developing in, in the mid 20th century and continuing today. This is something unique in the Western world. You don't have this transgenerational indigenous and losing, using the word indigenous loosely, not just referring to the native people, but also to those people who had a significant population here at the time the United States was established. So indigenous in that sense and not in a deeper uh, geographical sense of belonging to the place long before outsiders coming, but indigenous in terms of the three significant communities at the time the United States was established, the African-American community, the European uh, colonizers and the native people. And so indigenous in that sense. So that's a brief overview uh, of uh, the presence. And today you have uh, what you see, you have many thriving inner city communities. A lot of them primarily on the East Coast are associated with the Salafi movement. A lot of them are associated with various Sufi movements, very prominent Tijani, especially Tijani uh, movements whose roots are in West Africa, primarily in Senegal and other uh, Sufi tariqas. And then you have more mainstream uh, Muslims affiliated with scholars, graduates of Al-Azhar, such as uh, the community of Imam Hamza Abdul Malik in Memphis, Tennessee, who's uh, connected with a group of young 
scholars such as uh, Imam uh, Suleiman uh, Hamid in Atlanta, Georgia, Imam Jihad Safir, Safir in Los Angeles, Imam Fatim uh, Saifullah in Las Vegas, uh, Imam Amin Muhammad in Atlantic City, uh, New Jersey. And so many of these young African-American Imams are establishing a very vibrant network. So you have a wide array of, uh, of movements and activities uh, developing in the African-American community. And this is a continuation of what's been happening since slavery. Uh, I don't know if you're gonna ask a question to transition us or you just want me to transition to the next topic. No, uh, I think that that's a that's very um, great uh, intro in regarding the history, uh, specifically uh, for a lot of people who um, kind of don't understand the, how the the black um, history in the United States and how uh, it goes beyond just even I know a lot of our community and and, and rightly so are um, always associate themselves with someone like Malcolm X. Uh, but, but this is the intro that you gave um, is ideal because it, it, it shows the historical significance and the impact of uh, black folks in, in this country, specifically not just with them coming um, in the early uh, you know, 20th century, but also from before, uh, even after slavery. And I think with that being said, I mean, if you can give us a little bit of uh, historical uh, recap of uh, the impact of slavery, uh, the introduction of modern uh, uh, modern uh, racism, the introduction of institutional and structural racism. And while you're doing that, Imam, because I, I hate to cut you off, if you can also give a little bit of, while you're doing that, unless we can pause and I can ask another question, but kind of give also a, a kind of recap on the historical res resistance movements against in, uh, institutional racism, whether it's through Malcolm X, through uh, uh, Marcus uh, uh, Garvey or, or Martin Luther King. Uh, it, it, a lot of people kind of don't understand that history much. They only know a little bit of quotes from Malcolm X or Martin Luther King and, and that's it. Yeah, I think before going into this, one more thing I'd like to mention about the Islamic presence amongst the enslaved population by conservative estimates, 20% of the slaves that came from Africa were Muslims. And so that's one out of every five. And collectively, Muslims form the single uh, largest identity group. So if you have various tribal groups, so the Bambara, Fulani, the Wolof, the Mandinka, none of them individually as individual identity groups or even the Christians amongst the enslaved population. There were Christians in amongst the people of West Africa or uh, some of the uh, uh, traditional African religions. Individually, the Muslims form the single largest, largest identity group. And so one out of every five slaves was a Muslim. And again, that's conservative uh, estimate. And so Muslims contributed their free labor, blood, sweat, and tears to build this country. And so it's, it's absolutely imperative for those who aren't of African descent to identify at a spiritual level 
when we say Millata Abina Ibrahim, the way of our forefather Abraham, he, he's not a blood uh, antecedent. To most of us, he's our spiritual father, Millata Abikum Ibrahim. The mothers of the believers, Ummahatul Mu'mineen, they're not our biological mothers, most of us. Some of you, they are. You're from Ali Bait and uh, descendants of, of the mothers, actually, but most of us aren't, but they are, they are our spiritual mothers. And so those African Muslims, such as Kunta Kinte, whose story we know, and if you haven't watched Roots, watch the new Roots, the one that came out a few years ago, uh, Ibrahim Abdurrahman. All of these are our spiritual, if they're not our physical ancestors, they are our spiritual ancestors and their blood, sweat and tears helped to build this country. So no Muslim should feel like there's some alien force that say, oh, you don't belong here. This is a Judeo-Christian country, etc." No, Muslims were right there from the very beginning, contributing free labor, contributing blood, sweat and tears to build this country. And you should, you should stake your claim in that. You should see, find your legitimacy and being authentically American in that. But to get to the, the question at hand, I probably took all the time allotted for that last question. Uh, and I think it's very important for us to recognize something that indeed white supremacy and black inferiority, these are two sides of the same coin. They developed here in the United States. There are no white people in Europe. There are Celts, there are Welch, there are Scots, there are Brits, there are Irish, there are Anglos and Saxons, there are Franks, there are all different tribes of people and nations. There, there are Czechs, there are Slavs, there are Greeks. There are no white people in Europe. White, white people are a, a, an American invention, just as there are no black people in Africa. There are Wolof, there are Bambara, Mandinka, Fulani. There are, are an array of, of, of Hausa, uh, Tawarir. There are different people. There are no black people. There are various tribes and various nations and communities of people. Whiteness and blackness were invented here in the United States as a means to enforce an inferior status on one people and a superior status on another. <clears throat> and the reason for that, and a lot of people miss this, and I think it's very important in this moment for us to understand it. The reason for that was to undermine the emerging transracial solidarity amongst the enslaved people. So you have many of you from your American history lessons remember that a lot of the people coming from Europe were slaves. They were usually referred to as indentured servants, indentured service, servants rather. And they were working in the fields, they were working in what would become the factories, the early phases of the factories and the mills. They were working and, and building the infrastructure of this country alongside their African brothers and sisters. This is very important. Something happened in 1675. 
uh, that's referred to as Bacon's Rebellion. Bacon was trying to uh, buy his way into the elite of the country and they wouldn't accept him. And he rallied his slaves black and white and they fomented a rebellion that nearly succeeded in overthrowing the established order. The establishment struck back in a very ingenious way. What they did, they realized in order for us to maintain our domination in this country, we have to split the white masses of poor folks and enslaved folks from the black masses. So they liberated the white folks and started that liberation. It would unfold over a longer period of time. And then they told the liberated white folks that you are superior to the black folks. And so they, they made them the police, policemen of the black folks. They made them the overseers of the black folks. And they enforced in them a sense of superiority, not based on economic strata, uh, status rather, because they're still poor. They're still poor but based on color. They're black, you're white. White is better than black. And that was, that was the beginning of white supremacy, establishing a differentiation based on color to enforce the rule of the dominant elites. So there were, and every time in American history, there is an effort at transracial solidarity. It's undermined by those elites. And so as a result, you had black resistance and white resistance generally. And there are moments when it, when it came together owing to uh, just tremendously talented individuals. So it came to, for example, during the uh, early part of the career of Fred Frederick Douglass, the towering intellectual and activist uh, who was such a critical voice in uh, the anti-slavery move slavery movement. When, when Frederick Douglass joined forces with William Lloyd, Lloyd Garrison during the mid and to the early uh, 18, mid to latter 1840s, the very beginning of the 1840s, 50s, there was this coming together, black and white resistance. But for a number of reasons, they would split. Frederick Douglass would establish his own newspaper uh, to rival uh, Garrison's newspaper. And so it drifted apart. Uh, the populist movement at the end of the 18th and 19th century, you had it coming together again. It was consciously undermined. And so the, the, the resistance took place along racial lines. And so you had the, the great black slave revolts, you had the Nat Turner's revolt, revolt. you had the movement of Denmark Vesey, you had uh, the work of Harriet Tubman. And again, Harriet Tubman, this is an example where this resistance came together. Harriet Tubman's work with the Underground Railroad was a work that united black folks and white folks in opposition, in resistance. And as a result, it was very, very effective. Harriet Tubman was very effective 
but she wasn't effective in a vacuum. She was effective in partnership with many dedicated uh, white folks who were working together with her uh, on, in the context of the Underground Railroad. And so, yeah, many million, many towering figures. You have the Harriet Tubmans, you have the Frederick uh, Douglases, you have into moving into the 20th century, the great, great, great W.E.B. Du Bois. You have figures like Booker T. Washington who are working for black liberation, but through empowering black folks economically. That your liberation can't be real unless it's, there's an economic base. So establishing that economic base, establishing the great educational uh, institution, the Tuskegee Institute to, to help foster that economic base. So you have figures like Booker T. Washington, you have figures like W.B. Du Bois, you have uh, the great literary figures in the 1920s and 30s associated with the Harlem Renaissance as it's called, the poet Langston Hughes, America was never America to me, but I, sm I swear this oath, America shall be. So you have, in Langston Hughes, you have Richard Wright, uh, a very, very strong voice, writing just uh, works of fiction and nonfiction that, that are incredible and that are providing the creation of the consciousness that would, uh, uh, undergird the movements of the 1960s. And so that the work of Richard Wright in the 30s and 40s, the work of the li likes of Langston Hughes, who are developing, as I said, the consciousness that's necessary to, to provide the foundation for the freedom and liberation of a people from the shackles of, of now Jim Crow and second-class citizenry legalized second-class citizenry. And we're talking about the 1950s, Brown versus the Board of Education. This is uh, 1954. So we're, this is in many of our lifetimes. I just made it under the wire, I'm 1956. But it wasn't that long ago, brothers and sisters. And so then in the 60s, you have Malcolm X. He emerges from the platform provided by the Nation of Islam in the 1950s, and he really grows into a towering international figure of trans-national uh, significance. So throughout what some refer to as the Black Atlantic, Malcolm the Caribbean, uh, Great Britain, West Africa, even the, and then the Muslim world linking the struggle. And I think this is something uh, that uh, you're trying to do, my dear brother, uh, Raja, is link the struggle of the Muslims, the Arabs, and the South Asians with the struggle of the African-Americans. And this is something that Malcolm was beginning to do in a very, very effective way. Some say, and that's probably why they took Malcolm out, because Malcolm was getting support from the Muslim world, from the wider African world, uh, for the human rights campaign, uh, campaign rather, he was raising to accuse America of violating the human rights of its African-American population. And to do that, Malcolm had to build very strong bridges of solidarity throughout the Muslim world, throughout the wider African world, continent rather, 
and he was doing exactly that. And, and so you have figures, uh, after Malcolm, you have the, the uh, Imam Jamil Al-Amin, H. Rap Brown, Stokely Carmichael, and uh, SNCC, and the work that Stokely uh, was doing. The work that Imam Jamil, who uh, H. Rap Brown, who become Imam J Jamil Al-Amin, was doing. The work of the Black Panthers, uh, born in Oakland, California, but becoming a national organization, primarily of young people, and not just uh, challenging the uh, powers that be at many different levels, at, at a legal level at a level of armed defense of the community. So I didn't say armed opposition uh, to the established order. Uh, the Black Panthers weren't fools, but armed defense of their communities so that the kind of police brutality that existed then would not continue into the future. And that was one of the primary rallying cries of the Black Panthers, resisting police brutality. And one, one of the roots of that brutality is that many of the Western cities, particularly Los Angeles, were recruiting police officers from the Deep South, particularly from East Texas and Louisiana, to because they were experts as these cities such as San Francisco, which has generally been ethically cleansed of African-Americans today, Oakland and Los Angeles, parts of neighborhoods in Sacramento, uh, were, were witnessing the growth of very large African-American populations. These policemen were recruited from the South to keep the black folks in their place because they in the South knew how to do that. And so that created a, 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 an atmosphere that led to a lot of police brutality. And that brutality gave birth to the Black Panthers and other organizations. So there's a long history of, of resistance. There's a long history of response to police brutality. Uh, a lot of the organizing uh, in the 1850s when Frederick Douglass really hit his stride, a lot of that and, and, and William Lloyd Garrison and others was a response to the uh, Fugitive Slave Act, where now slave owners could send bounty hunters, use the police to capture black folks and throw them into bondage and bring, after they have had escaped and liberated themselves, just pick them up off the streets of Northern cities and send them back uh, South into bondage and then just kidnap ordinary uh, citizens. The movie 12, uh, Years this, uh, 12 Years a Slave, it's the story of Mr. Northrup uh, who wrote the book. This, this, his experience uh, exemplifies that. He was just lured into a situation as a free African-American in upstate New York, lured into a situation where he was thrown into bondage for 12 years. So we, we have to understand that there, there's a long history of, of racism. Uh, the country uh, was founded on racism because a deal was cut in the constitution where black folks were presented as three fifths of a, of a human being. And why was that? Black men, three fifths of a man. 
It wasn't even to recognize the humanity of black folks. It was a deal that was cut to give a disproportionate amount of political uh, power to the Southern states. The Southern uh, slave-owning states said, we're not going to join this union unless our African slaves who don't even count as human beings can count as three-fifths of a man for congressional purposes of congressional representation. And so you put two slaves together, you have a, 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 a full human being, if you will. And, and so that's, that goes into your representation, but it gives no political voice and no political power to those slaves whose numbers are, are used to gain enhanced political and disproportionate political power for those Southern states. It's, and that, that system hasn't died. In many of the Northern states, uh, generally the prisons are in rural communities. So here in the, I'm right now, I'm in the state of Connecticut. Most of the prisoners come from Hartford, New Haven, Waterbury, these are all communities with very large, New Britain, my hometown, very large African-American populations. That's where the prisons come from. The prisons in rural communities such as Cheshire or Enfield or Summers, Connecticut up near the Massachusetts border, these are almost all white towns. Those prisoners in many instances, they count as citizens for those towns in terms of uh, allocation of federal and state funds, in terms of uh, represent, state representatives, this is true in New York also. The prisoners are coming from New York City. The prisons are in Auburn, the prisons are in Comstock, the prisons are upstate, and these rural communities benefit from the present, but the prisoners are disenfranchised. They can't even vote. And so that sort of uh, deal that was cut along racial lines at the time the Constitution was 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 uh, drafted in certain forms it still endures to this very day, and things are changing. We acknowledge change. The state of Florida, uh, the the felony laws that disenfranchised. Uh, people committed, convicted of felonies for life was changed recently. And, uh, and, and a challenge was just successful in turning back an effort to disenfranchise those newly enfranchised for, uh, former felons. Uh, and that was defeated. So it's a struggle, it's ongoing, as long there are victories, we should be hopeful. Muslims are hopeful people. We are mutafa'ilun. We're not people who are pessimistic. We're not people who take bad omens and everything. We're optimistic and we take good omens, but we have to work hard. I, I mean, subhanAllah, I mean, I've, I've read so much about the, the black history, but I, it was never summarized to me in a most significant way that you just did. The, the, the way you summarize the resistance movements for the past few hundred years is, is is really insightful. So thank you so much for that. And I hope people actually benefit from this because I I think it's very hard to get it recapped and summarized in such a, 
such an insightful and, and, and sure way possible. So now I'll accept from you. Uh, before, I mean, you continue, and, I, and I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but... Uh, no, no, I think you, it's very good for you to ask some contextualizing yeah. questions. I'll just yeah. go off and... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure most people, based on comments, are, are really enjoying this insightful uh, history. So uh, just to be a little bit structural here regarding the, 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 the discussion, and I think I want people to benefit from benefit from this as much as possible. So we talked about the history of Islam uh, in, in the black, uh, with black folks, and we talked about the resistance movements, and we talked about the responses specifically in terms of how to defend themselves. But I think one aspect that I would like you to, I know you just started touching upon it, but if you can go a little bit in depth, is the, the concept of why is there, um, why, what's the need for white supremacists? Or what's the need, actually, let me rephrase the question. What's the need for um, the, the oppression and uh, demonization, demoralization, uh, the relegation of black folks uh, to the status of subhumans uh, in this country and even in Europe back in the day? As we know, in, uh, in the, 19, uh, the 19th century, uh, when Europe, uh, was you know continuing to colonize the world, specifically Africa, and the concept of uh, you know uh, structural racism, biological racism, social Darwinism. Um, how you know the white Europeans, as as you mentioned earlier on, and that's the concept of Eurocentricity and the concept that <clears throat> the world revolves around Europe and everybody else is just being used um, to to support Europe. Uh, what's the point of the, this relegation? Uh, against uh, the, the black race, if, if, if you allow me in that question. Specifically that some scholars in the US, like uh, I think Quetzal and, and others have argued like for instance, that the reason why police departments were created around the country is to preserve and to maintain and to protect white uh, uh, access to power uh, uh, and, to, and to money or to wealth. And we've seen that, I mean, white people now in average, everybody can inherit from their uncles, from the grandfathers, they can make millions by the fact by the time they they become forties and fifties now, even even thirties. You know their inheritance is is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Versus when we talk about black people in the black community, it's it, it's nothing. So can you? No, please... I think the net work uh, average net wealth wealth is is yani uh, assets v's uh, uh, liabilities is five dollars. Oh wow, that's that's insane! Doesn't even buy uh, two cups of coffee. So, uh, can you give us? Uh, can you draw a picture for us in terms of why? Number one, what's the need for the relegation of the black folks to not be considered human beings uh, versus uh, white folks? Number two is what's the point or why do we have structural racism now? I mean, because we know police brutality is not coming out of nowhere. It's 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 just a tool to preserve white supremacy. If you can delve into this topic, I think that's one aspect specifically the immigrant community cannot, specifically those who were not raised uh, and, 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 and learned the, uh, the, the American history here. If you can delve into that discussion, I think that will be, that will be very helpful. I think one, one reason we mentioned earlier when we talked about Bacon's rebellion, and that is to undermine the, the possibility of transracial solidarity. So if you create a, a, a system <clears throat> where basically everyone's exploited or a large percentage of the population, black or white, Latino, whatever, are exploited, 
then they have a, a vested interest in coming together to secure their rights. And so if you can create a system where some people will defend the system because they feel in this system, they have a, a superior standing that's threatened by those who are closest to them in terms of their social economic status. In other words, uh, and there's a brilliant study I would encourage everyone to, to read, especially now by uh, uh, Arlie Hochschild, uh, a sociologist at University of California, Berkeley, and it's called uh, Strangers in Their Own Land. And she goes to the most conservative uh, white community in this country in southwestern uh, Louisiana. It's also the most polluted part of the country. It's petrochemical alley. And she just lives amongst these people, folks, for several years, off and on, <clears throat> to examine why do they entertain the ideas they entertain about race? Why do they, they vote for candidates who are undermining their economic best interests? Why do they uh, work to defund an organization like the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, when their lands are the most polluted and they're dying, they're, they're fish, they can't fish in their beloved bayous. Uh, one of their horses fell into, one of, into, into the mud in one of the swamps and became uh, suffocated to death in a coat of plastic that hardened around the horse's body. There was so much petrochemical plastic uh, pollution uh, in the mud. So uh, what she discovered is, one of the things she discovered is that people felt threatened by those they felt would take rights that they saw belonging to them. And so they had this idea of cutting the line that why should we support Syrian immigrants? And so that was a time when uh, the, the Syrian conflict was, was uh, really uh, at, at a, it's still devastating, but even more devastating. And you had the waves of immigrants flooding into Europe and the United States was taking a, 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 a actual handful, not even a relative handful of those immigrants. And they would say things like, why should we allow these Syrian immigrants to come and cut the line and get benefits and money from the government that we should be getting? And so they're denied benefits themselves. They're denied health care themselves. They're denied decent education. Like uh, Louisiana has probably the worst or one of the two or three worst educational systems in the country. So they're denied these things. But instead of joining together with anyone that can help them secure them, the idea of white supremacy leads them to fight against those they see competing with them for those goods. And so it's, it's more of a, a, a mental frame of mind, a mentality that's uh, created by this system than actual differences in terms of social economic status. And I think that's one of the big reasons. Uh, and, and so ultimately it, it works to undermine the creation of transracial solidarity.
even the issue, and, and I want to be very careful when I, when I say what I'm going to say, because I don't want anyone to think uh, that I don't understand the reality of the pain and the, the, the suffering experience in the African-American community vis-a-vis -vis the police. I've, I've seen this firsthand up front. So I'm very familiar with it. And, and if you're an African-American, you're four to five times more likely to die the way that George Floyd died, unarmed at the hands of a police officer. And, and so that indicates the sort of structural racism you're talking about, because there's a structure, an, an institutional structure in place to make that statistic possible. <clears throat> it just couldn't randomly happen. But in terms of raw numbers, not in terms of, of percentages, in terms of raw numbers, twice as many white folks are killed by cops every year in this country. On, uh, during the week that uh, Alden, uh, Alton Sterling in Louisiana and Philando uh, Castile in Minnesota, ironically, and that week they were killed. And we, we remember that week, it was very hot. And the demonstrations that, that happened and the, the uh, killing of uh, four or five police officers in Dallas, Texas, shooting of two police officers there in Louisiana, it was a very tense time. But during that same week, five Latinos were killed by police in this country. And so I, I say that to say, not to say there's any comparison because of, as I said, if you're African-American, you're far more likely to die at the hands of a police officer than any other demographic, but other people are also dying. And the only way we're going to overcome this is by coming together. And white supremacy keeps us apart. And you see that today, you see the, uh, the, the Boogaloo boys are representing and speaking for the white folks who are being killed by cops, right? And, and so you have, and instead of having the creation of organizations uh, coming together and establishing bonds of solidarity that transcend racial lines, to create the critical mass needed to overcome this vexing problem. It's a vexing problem because police brutality is nothing new. We just have cell phones now. So now we have, we have cell phones, we can film it. But before we can film it, it was happening probably even and worse than it is now. And you could go back to the 60s. As we said, why did the, ra the race riots break out in so many of these cities? Los Angeles, police brutality. Detroit, police brutality. And many of the, the, the race riots of the 60s, you could go back beyond the 60s. And then you could go back to the beginning of Jim Crow. You can go back to all of the lynchings, over 10,000 documented by a project spearheaded primarily by the great Ida B. Wells. And those lynchings in many instances were aided and abetted by law enforcement. Mobs were led into the prison, into the jails to haul out the victim to be lynched. Police officers standing there 
with the crowd clapping as the body's being strung up or, or, or castrated. And this is, this is a reality. So you can go back to the, uh, the, the period of lynching in the early days of Jim Crow. You can go back to slavery and the brutalities of that. You can go back to Pedro Quilafo being boiled to death in a pot of oil almost 500 years ago. And, and so this is a deeply rooted problem and it's a societal ill. And it's going to take all of us coming together to stop it. And so one of the purposes of white supremacy is to prevent us from coming together. Why are you joining those people? They're just a bunch of fill in the blank. And you're, uh, you're one of us. You're a white man. Forget the fact that you're poor. Forget the fact that you don't have any health care. Forget the fact that, that you're, you're $60,000 in debt from going to college. Forget all of that. You're white. And because you're white, you're right. Because you're right, you're better than those black folks and you're better than those brown folks. And so don't join together with them. Stay with us and continue to be exploited. That's what white supremacy does. That's the, those are the ends that it serves. Thank you, uh, Imam. I mean, it, it, you brought up a few good points and I think here when I ask you, I, I know we have a lot of questions coming in, uh, but just to, to, to do our best to do a little bit of more context regarding what's going on today. Um, so understanding how white supremacy works and, and, and as you mentioned, uh, and, and that's why, as you mentioned even earlier, uh, that Malcolm X might have uh, been um, taken out because of his uh, transnational approach to dealing with white supremacy. And I think one problem here that we always hear is that police brutality sometimes is by certain individuals and, and certain aspects of the society is attributed to like bad apples within the society or bad apples with police departments. But based on what you're saying and regarding how white supremacy and the system in itself since the constitution, this country was built on specific <clears throat> ethos to maintain, uh, as we discussed, the uh, wealth and power to be limited to white folks versus everybody else, specifically uh, following uh, the racial uh, division starting from Europe, the concept of colonization starting that white versus everybody else, the white savior, uh, versus all the barbarics, versus Africa, versus everybody else. Now, with that being said, can we attribute, and specifically to the young folks, how can we explain police brutality today? Why is the white, I mean, why is the black man, specifically black men everywhere, unarmed or whether armed, that's irrelevant right now, why are they being targeted this way? Why are we constantly, and I think there's a lot of websites that are sure statistics, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a couple of hundred uh, black men are killed every single year uh, you know, by, by police brutality. Can you give a little bit of an explanation why is this take place uh, uh, even until today? And as you mentioned, brilliantly, Ian, and I always argue this, is that there are cameras nowadays, nowadays and we still see this, this oppression and this police brutality. Just imagine what used to happen 50 and 60 and 70 years ago. So if you can just respond to that and explain the dynamics of, uh, or the, the kind of understanding of the police brutality currently? I think number one, there's a, there's a legal structure that permits it. 
there's a legal structure that basically says no matter what you do, you are immune from prosecution. And so I think that that's part of it. Uh, I think that in terms of, uh, you're absolutely right in terms of wealth protection, but I, I think it's not always, it doesn't always articulate itself along racial lines because you find similar patterns, not as severe. So don't get me wrong, not as severe, but, and so for example, all white uh, poor cities or in cities where they're native and in places like uh, Montana or the Dakotas, particularly North and South Dakota or Nevada or areas in California where there are high percentages of poor uh, Latinos, you find the same reality. And so that points to a structure and that structure includes number one, the legal protection that police enjoy, immunity from prosecution. And if anyone uh, thinks that racism is not a factor, uh, just look at uh, Minnesota. When, when a black cop, black Somali cop kills a white lady, he's immediately thrown into jail. And he, be he becomes the first policeman to go to jail for killing someone. But all over the years, the, the black folks that are killed by white cops, no one goes to jail. And, and as I said, that's part of a legal structure. It's part of a structure of a, a fraternity that provides unqualified support. A lot of times that, that fraternity is represented by the Police Benevolence Association. Uh, it's represented by a... a, a uh, a structure of that encourages impunity. It's encouraged by, in recent years, the militarizing of our police for forces. And so police are being trained by uh, institutions that are adopting not the tactics of policing uh, poor fellow citizens, but the tactics of policing occupied po populations. And so uh, owing to that combination, that's the structure, the legal structure, the fraternal structure, the militarizing of the police, the uh, cultivating an air of impunity. So collectively, these things lead to the kind of outcomes that disproportionately affect African-Americans, but generally affect everybody who might be in primarily, even in rural communities. And so uh, that, that structure has to be undone. Those structures have to be undone. The, the militarizing of our police forces has to cease. That's a struggle in and of itself. The legal structure that's put in place, not, and not just uh, locally, at the municipal level, at the state level, but also at the federal level, it's impossible to bring a, cla a, a, a class action discrimination suit against a, a, a police officer or a police department because of several Supreme Court decisions. And this is something uh, Michelle Alexander talks about in her book, The New Jim Crow. 
So that legal structure has to be uh, confronted. The militarization of our police departments have to be confronted. The uh, fraternal organizations that almost guarantee immunity for prosecution for policemen in most cases, it didn't benefit the Somali uh, cop there in Minneapolis because he's an outsider. So he doesn't benefit from that privilege. And, and uh, then the, the culture of impunity, that has to be uh, confronted. And, and so collectively those things, and we can name, name a few others, but I would say immediately, those are the components of that structure that have to be confronted and struggled against if we're going to see this, uh, th these atrocities, particularly against the African-American uh, community, but increasingly generally against uh, anyone in this country. Thank you, Imam. Uh, one, one other topic um, that we've see, been seeing is the undermining of the black struggle. And later on, by the end, hopefully we'll talk about your, um, you know, how you imagine uh, the black struggle movement coming up and what I, or, or the title of this, which is the black liberation movement specifically following the footsteps of Malcolm X, but we'll talk about, about that in a, in a little bit. But if you can explain a little bit to our viewers how the, the highlighting of some of these lootings that are happening around the country, how it undermines the black struggle. Because unfortunately, a lot of people don't understand how what the black community is going through. They don't understand, or as Malcolm X you was you used to say, the cycle of um, uh, what's the uh, it's escaping me right now. But basically, how the black folks are stuck in a cycle. They go through the same bad cycle of education, of uh, economy, of of of, of uh, every every single thing that is happening in their life is is stuck in the same framing. That they, it's very hard to get out of that frame. So if you can explain how, you know, two things. Number one, how the constant highlighting of, of these lootings or these uh, certain things that take place are actually undermining the black struggle because that's, that's not really the problem right now. The problem is the, 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 the black men that are, that are being shot in the streets. And number two, if you can also talk about, and this is a, this is a sensitive topic, but I, I really appreciate your openness and, and willingness to, to take this on, is the relationship uh, between uh, business owners, specifically Muslim business owners coming from immigrant background, relationship between them and, and the black folks in, uh, in the inner cities, center, inner cities, because we've been hearing a lot of discussions on, on social media regarding this topic. So I think will be useful if you can uh, tackle these two issues uh, to better contextualize uh, what's happening in the inner cities, to contextualize uh, the idea of resistance, to contextualize how people are responding to oppression uh, for the past you know, hundreds of years. I think we're, we are in a very, very dangerous moment uh, because we, we see uh, the rise and this really accelerated during the Obama administration, many uh, white supremacist, white nationalist groups saw the rise of a black president as an indication that they were losing their country, if you will. And, and so they had to rally and increase their numbers and increase their power in order to take back 
their country. And that should sound familiar. Uh, in any case, uh, so you have a rise and now it culminated in Charlottesville. And this is another moment that the white nationalists, white supremacist movements are using to project their, their rising power. And, and so a lot of these groups are, are instrumental in the looting, the burning, the rioting. This is one of the reasons in many cities you find, you go to the march and you find hardly any African-Americans because a, a lot of black folks are, are saying like, if we going down there, I'm gonna get cracked in the head uh, and then get blamed for burning down my own city when it's outsiders, be the outsiders from the left or the right. And I'm not saying there, there, there's an equivalent between them. I'm talking about who's doing, who's smashing the windows, who's burning down the properties. And, and particularly in, in the past, uh, in Oakland, California, and I was there, uh, you had a lot of left-wing groups. You had the black box, block rather, for example, uh, doing a lot of property damage. But now you have a lot of right-wing groups uh, that are taking advantage of this opportunity. Number one, to, to, to kill black folks. Like seven people were shot in Louisville uh, a few nights ago. Around the country, uh, many people have been shot. And who's doing that shooting? It, it's, it's not the people in those neighborhoods shooting themselves. The property that's being destroyed and burned and, and th this is documented by police departments who are capturing a lot of these people coming in from suburban communities. A lot of them are affiliated with, with right, right wing racist groups that are doing this in order to uh, create a, a higher stress level. Some of them under the delusion that they can start a race war. So this is a very dangerous moment. And, and the bulk of that, the looting, the bulk of the, the property damage, the bulk of the fires, that's who's setting these fires. So they're provocateurs and they're agents and they're, they're people that have a very well-defined political agenda. And also part of that is to, to undermine the popular support for the black struggle for the African-American struggle. Say, so look, these people, they deserve what they get. They're a bunch of savages. They burned down their own city. And so a lot of people uh, inclined towards that line of thought whom under uh, more favorable circumstances could be very sympathetic uh, to uh, what's going on. So I, I think we have to be very, very uh, insightful and keen and, and really understanding what's happening out there, that the, these organizations and groups are using this moment to advance their agenda and to discredit. Uh, uh, on NPR today, so we're not talking about some left-wing program like Democracy Now! or something. NPR today was talking to a Black Lives uh, matter activists about a Caucasian individual who was caught scribbling BLM 
on the on the walls of a restaurant. And and so why? See, so, you know, Black Lives Matter, they're just a bunch of thugs and hooligans. Why should anyone support them? So we have to be very astute and, and really understanding uh, what's going on and how efforts to undermine potential support are very, very real. And they go to a very high level because if, if someone, if anyone doubts that there's a degree of high level coordination between these uh, anti lockdown rallies that took place in several states, most prominently in Michigan. And then many of those same elements who were pushing the anti uh, uh, lockdown uh, measures and protests are now showing up at these rallies. So if anyone doubts that there's a high degree of coordination between high levels of government and media and those protesters in the state houses and state capitals and now on the streets of our country, you're deceived. I'm sorry. And so we have to be very, very uh, careful and we have to be very discerning. Very good, thank you, Imam. Uh, moving on to the imagining the future and how you see this movement progressing because I think until today and I, I don't know if you agree with me uh, we're not seeing uh, a newer generation of leaders in the black community at large not just specifically uh, the, the Muslim uh, black community but right now I think a lot of I, I'm, I'm, I'm in touch with a few friends here and there and we're still waiting for uh, kind of a, a movement to come along and to um, continue to push the society uh, to have some radical changes because as you brilliantly explained, the, the systematic oppression, systematic racism that we are seeing in this country is not something that can be changed by education. Unfortunately, a lot of our brothers and sisters everywhere, they just think, oh, all you have to do is just educate a white person how you know a black person is, is equal in, as, a, as a human being. And as you explained historically and politically, and economically, even when we when we want to discuss capitalism and its impact on society, that's not the, that's not the cause. Education is not enough because clearly here we're dealing with power, we're dealing with race issues, and we're dealing with e economic issues. So, how do you imagine the black struggle? Um, and I don't know again if you agree with the title of uh, Black Liberation Movement. It's something what Malcolm X started um, working on, and even pe you know people before him, Elijah Muhammad, and and Marcus Garvey and, and others who were saying that the only solution for the black people to literally have their independence, because it's very hard to be able to be, have an e equal human, right, uh, human rights in, the, in a society that was built to prosecute and oppress black people. How do you imagine um, the future and the movement moving forward from today? I think that that's an excellent question. I'm glad we skipped the one about uh, intra-communal. Oh, I'm coming racism. back to that later. Well, I think that that, that deserves a separate, uh, that's, that's a really big complex issue that deserves a separate uh, program. But if you come back to it, so be it. Uh, I think that what happened at the end of Dr. King's life, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the end of 
Malcolm X's life and Hajj Malik al-Shahbaz is what needs to happen. So, so essentially, uh, these two streams of the African-American struggle came together. And I think that that's represented by uh, the speech that Malcolm X gave in, I believe it was Mississippi shortly before his death and Coretta Scott King uh, was in the audience at the time. And uh, she spoke very favorably of uh, Malcolm and, and what he was doing. And so you saw uh, a, a, a coming together that the, the internationalism that Malcolm started before Dr. King, that manifested itself in Dr. King and most prominently in his opposition to the war in Vietnam. And the, the domestic uh, organization, uh, organize, or organizing that Dr. King was so uh, proficient at that manifested itself in Malcolm X and the creation of his organization of African-American unity, uh, modeled after the organization of African unity, but given a domestic manifestation. And, and so that, that leads me to, to answer that question in the following way. The future will be lie in the merger of Malcolm X and Dr. King. The most prominent thing that we as Muslims can take from Malcolm X is to be human beings whose lives are transformed by Islam. And, and then we, we will transcend this whole uh, history of racism that has plagued this country. And we'll be in a position to begin to pull our brothers and sisters up out of that quagmire. Uh, Malcolm famously said along those lines, and, and, and there are many things we can discuss in terms of Malcolm, but I, I just want to emphasize this. Islam has solved my personal problem. Islam has solved my personal problem. In other words, I found peace of mind. I found uh, the purpose of life. I, I found the, the deeper uh, philosophical explanations for the realities I see unfolding in the world. But until the problem of my people are solved, I'll still be Malcolm X. So Islam, Malcolm said, Islam has solved my personal problem. So our future lies in our personal problems being solved. We cannot be uh, people who are so desperate, so traumatized, so filled with anger and pain that we can't think clearly. Because with this, we're dealing with very powerful and deep uh, historical and societal forces. And to overcome them, we're going to have to have very, very clear heads. And that's the greatest thing. We could take a lot more from Malcolm, but I think that's the greatest thing as Muslims we can take. And then from Dr. King, I think the future, we're going to have to inherit his, his the struggle of Dr. King against the evil triplets, which he identified as poverty, racism, and militarism. 
and he saw them all connected. And, and so that has to be our struggle. We have to inherit that struggle against racism, poverty, and militarism, but doing it from a, a personal, spiritual, psychic, uh, psychological, better word, spiritual, psychological, and moral foundation that is defined by Islam. And that gives us the personal serenity, the personal stability, the personal uh, mooring in reality to take on that work. So that's why I think the future, and I think a lot of exciting things are happening. It, it, it's, we're dealing with so many new features uh, of society that are coming at us so fast that we have to process the changes before we can really see an effective movement. So just the, the processing social media, that hasn't been processed. And so a lot of people are, are distraught because they think that the real struggle is online and not on the front lines. And that's because the, the reality of social media hasn't been processed. I was talking with a young lady from, from Minneapolis uh, yesterday or the day before. And she was just saying how difficult it is for her to stay spiritually grounded. And she's a student of Quran and to stay close to my Quran. When I spend my whole day on the cell phone, I'm, I'm texting, I'm watching video clips, I'm following the news. And so we have to process that one aspect of change in our lives that has occurred over the context of the last 10 years or 10, 12 years. So we have to process that. We have to process uh, the reality of, in this country, of overt state sponsorship of chaos. So what is our president doing to calm the nation right now? What is our president doing to send a message of unity right now? There's nothing. There, there, there is an active uh, encouragement of chaos. And, and so we, we have to process that. This is a new political reality. So not to say that the current president is necessarily any worse. Obama has deported more people than Trump so far, right? The deporter in chief. So not to say that the, the current president is fundamentally worse, but to say that the, the chaos, the chaos around the COVID-19, the, the consistency of, of Prime Minister Arden in New Zealand and the results of that, the consistency of Angela Merkel in Germany, the consistency of that we see in a, a Justin Trudeau, not to say everything they've done in the, the, in the face of the, the consistency of the leaders of Taiwan. Again, not to say everything they've done, they've done is perfect, but they've had a consistent message 
rooted in science as they understand it. What have we had from, from the White House? We've had total massive confusion, confusion and chaos. And believe me, I don't think that's an accident, but it is. it does represent a new political reality that we have to process. And so we're processing the advent of social media. We're processing the advent of a changed political situation. We're processing the reality of, of COVID-19. Regardless of where it came from, it's here. And it's resulted in some unprecedented societal challenges. It's resulted in an economic meltdown we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And all of that people are processing. It's, it was very, it's very taxing and difficult. Now we have, in the midst of that, we have this, this sadistic, pornographic murder. And that's, couldn't, that is, and, and then the casual uh, standing over the trophy like someone who's just shot a rhinoceros in Africa and they're standing there with their hand in their pocket casually posing with their prey. And so the, these optics in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this uh, uh, e economic meltdown, in the midst of, of really trying to come to grips with social media, whose role is accented because we're all at home, so we're having webinars like this at, at a clip unprecedented. I, this Ramadan, I had to sort through 400 online event requests. And I'm sure I'm, I'm, there's others who have more than me. So the, all of these unprecedented realities, we have to process. But I think once we do process them, you're going to see some very strong leaders and some very strong uh, movements come out of this, including or not excluding in the Muslim community, not excluding the African-American community, not excluding the Latino community, not excluding the white community. Look, the power of this moment is so great. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but all over the country, with greater or lesser degrees of what some might identify as sincerity, you see police marching with the marchers. You see police taking a knee, Colin Kaepernick style, to protest this injustice. And so this is a powerful spiritual moment, but it, it, it's so powerful, we have to process it. But once it is processed, you're gonna see amazing things, I guarantee you. That, uh, that's a very good, um way of looking at this and specifically I think as you started earlier on the transformation from Malcolm X how the, the reasons why he went to jail and how Islam transformed him in jail and how later on when he found uh, Sunni Islam and he uh, left Nation of Islam and how did that impact him on a personal level spiritual level psychological level uh, and I think as you mentioned that that's very essential and I think the way you put it is that it's it's in essence what Islam is about is is about the context or as I always say that Islam is a is a continuous liberation project meaning that internally you're trying to rectify your morals you're trying to change your character you're trying to become a better person 
so you can be ready externally to change the world into becoming a better place. And, can you, and, don't, and don't burn out in the process. And don't burn out in the process, which, which is always ends up happening for all of us. So how, how can specifically young Muslims, and here, of course, we, the focus is on black Muslims, but also for other non-Muslims, but maybe you can start with, what's the, what can black, young black Muslims do learning from what you said, the legacy of Malcolm X, the legacy of other, even not necessarily just Muslim black uh, 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 freedom fighters and, and resistance uh, figures, how can they as Muslims learn their Islam, but at the same time work towards the liberation of, of, of their people in the US? Because we don't want them to just pray and fast and, and that's it. That's, that's, not, that's not Islam. Islam is about also being socially uh, available to change the world, to change the society. So what's your message to the young black folks, Muslim black folks to in this moment, to be able to, to seize this moment, to, to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and make, and make something that can impact uh, their community at large? Okay, uh, number one, I think uh, you, you alluded to it. We have to maintain uh, the balance. Like our religion represents a balance. We made you a middle nation. Uh, so our religion represents a balance. And, 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 and as we go forward in these very difficult times, we have to maintain that balance. One of those balances is between our spiritual life that's governed by uh, metaphysical realities. And then our social life that's governed by the reality, realities of the world. So if we err on the, if we overemphasize the spiritual, and so we want to really, we're, we're seeking marifa, we're seeking this experience, experiencing to the depths of our soul, the reality of Allah and our lives. And, and we're seeking to, to learn uh, the religion and, and we're seeking to uh, in, engage and, and the remembrance of Allah abundantly as we should. Yeah, oh you believers, remember Allah abundantly. And so we're doing that. And we're recognizing the role of patience. Uh, well, you're going to be tested in so many ways. Give glad tidings to those who are patient. And so we're exemplifying patience in the, for, for, in the face of just unimaginable atrocities. But if that's all we do, then we are not maintaining the balance. There's going to be an imbalance in that direction. On the other hand, if in our social political lives, we're just so obsessed with changing the world and we're, we're just, we're, in, in this so deep, and we're so outraged by these atrocities that we see occurring to the likes of, of George Floyd or, or the likes of Ayanna Jones, eight-year-old girl shot in her own house, or the likes of Ahmadou Diallo, 40-some-odd bullets just reaching in his pockets to get his keys out to open his front door, or, or the reality 
of Sandra Bland, who's executed in police custody, then is claimed as a suicide, or the reality of Alton Sterling, or the reality of Eric Garner, the first one who famously uh, pleaded, I can't breathe, as his, the life is choked out of him on the streets of Staten Island, or, or and the reality of Trayvon Martin just going to the store to buy some Skittles at halftime during the Super Bowl in his family's neighborhood, or the reality of, of all of these various cases that we could spend the, the balance of the program uh, just listing without even elaborating. So if we're so caught up with that, that we, we don't cultivate any spiritual awareness, any spiritual depth and substance and fiber, we don't uh, cultivate an understanding that struggle is the nature of this world, that struggle is the nature of this world, that the, the uh, people being facing difficult challenges in this world isn't a sign of divine displeasure or hatred. It's a sign of divine love. So we marginalize all that. Then we're, we're going to create an imbalance over there. So I think, as you said, we cultivate the spiritual life so that our personal well-being, as Malcolm said, Islam has solved my, spirit, my personal problem that personally, we are strong. Personally, we are at peace with ourselves and we're at peace with the world. But we know we have an obligation and we know that we, <clears throat> to, to those who are, whose problem hasn't been solved, for those who are suffering from, from various forms of, of oppression, uh, and responding to those Quranic and those scriptural phrases that urge us to struggle on the behalf of the, the downtrodden. That you're giving divine aid, and you're giving your sustenance, based on how you treat the poor and dispossessed amongst you. And so our... Uh, life as Muslims has to display that balance because an imbalance on one hand, just all spirit, all metaphysics, it will, will convey the, the, the impression that we, we have absolutely no concern for the poor, the, the traumatized, the exiled, the downtrodden, the trampled on masses of humanity. And that's not true because that's not who our prophet was. But on the other hand, if we're so obsessed with, with the, the, the sociological, political, socio-political aspects of society and the world, and we're so engrossed in that, we burn out, we become uh, displeased with, with, our, with our Lord, or how could God be a merciful? How could Allah be merciful? And we see all of this suffering. And so we, we lose a balance there. We have to maintain that balance. It's absolutely essential. And that's what not only allows us to struggle while maintaining our sanity, 
while maintaining the ability to smile when we come home to our spouses or we meet our and play with our children, it also allows us the foundation to recharge our batteries as we re-enter the fray day after day after day. Because this struggle we're in is a marathon and not a sprint. And so the marathon runner has to be very balanced, not too fast and not too slow. And realizing this race isn't over in 100 meters. It doesn't require a sprinter. This sudden burst of incredible energy and bam, then it's over in 10 seconds. No, this is a marathon. So get a comfortable pace and get to work. Very inspiring, uh, I asked a question earlier, and I know you're you're very very diplomatic in avoiding it, so I'll ask it in a different in a different way. You can um, ask it in the same way. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll ask in a different way. What can the immigrant Muslim community do to be supportive of the Black struggle? I mean, starting from recognizing the history before the immigration. Uh, specifically in the 60s, starting to recognize, um, uh, you know, the the, the struggle of uh, of black people, specifically Muslims in, in here. How can they um, be some more supportive? How can be truly allies? Because uh, you mentioned earlier on, on Imam, and Alhamdulillah, I think for us, at least in Majlis Shura, Islamic Leadership Council of New York, and our organizations that we work with, we try to be not just transnational, but we try to uh, uh, be allies and supportive of all the causes, all the just causes, because we believe in Muslims that we have to be just towards every single human being and every, every uh, towards every single just cause. Um, how can the immigrant community straight up in them um, be supportive, be helpful, and how can they better understand the pain of of our our black brothers and sisters? Well, first of all, I think. Find successful models. So the, the, un, the relationships between primarily suburban immigrant-based communities and inner city communities isn't universally bad. So I could tell you about the experience that I've had working with the Lighthouse Mosque in Oakland, California. Uh, the, the fundraisers to buy the masjid in the first place were overwhelmingly supported by the suburban uh, Muslim communities. Uh, for several years, we had a, a zakat uh, distribution program where uh, we uh, just let our brothers and sisters, and this was a, a couple of very visionary sisters, I won't say their names, were instrumental in helping us to set up a program to distribute zakat amongst the poor Muslims in Oakland, as opposed to sending that money overseas, because zakat is more rightfully spent in the land where that wealth has been generated. And so in a, in a few years, we spent up, we were able to dis distribute upwards to half a million dollars in zakat in the inner city communities, primarily through the auspices of the Lighthouse Mosque. Uh, so, uh, in uh, the Northern Virginia, Washington DC area. I know the Adams Center under the leadership of Imam Muhammad Majid has a very 
a successful program of, of similar import working in co uh, working together with uh, the uh, uh, community of Imam Talib Sharif and the inner city uh, masjid, I think on uh, 4th Street North Northwest in Washington, DC near Dunbar High School, my own neighborhood when I was a student at American University in Washington uh, to, to work on various projects similar to the one I mentioned that's happening in Oakland. So I think those are some things that can do the direct, at least a significant portion of your zakat towards the, uh, the support of Muslims who might not be uh, as financially uh, well off as some of the uh, suburban communities, uh, empowering uh, local uh, imams and other community leaders to be uh, spokespeople, persons and representatives of their community. Because when other immigrants see a platform giving to very talented uh, individuals in our inner city communities, they, they, they look at those communities themselves through a different lens. Like, where did that imam come from? Where did that sister come from? And, and so they, they, they see, oh, they came from there, down there. Oh, mashallah, those people, they, they, they're real Muslims after all. Maybe they're worthy of our support. So I, I think it's very important to empower uh, leaders and communities <clears throat> to support efforts. I mentioned at the onset, uh, a network of, of young African-American imams working in inner city communities. I mentioned Islah LA, Imam Jihad Safir in uh, South Central Los Angeles, Imam Hamza Abdul Malik in Memphis, Tennessee, who transformed one of the most devastated neighborhoods there. And so they, they built a masjid, in a dilapidated building, reformed it, structured a beautiful masjid. They have a madrasa where they're training uh, inner city imams. Imams are training young people to be imams in inner city communities. They have a vegetable garden, they have an orchard, they've built a, a, a playground, uh, all on vacant lots. They have uh, uh, beehives, they have what they call hood honey, honey from the hood. Uh, and, and, and they've done this in a few years and they've done it with support from the, the community there in, in, in Memphis and with more money, they could do even more. They have a food pantry. So every week they're, they're feeding, uh, a couple hundred people, uh, collectively, I mentioned these masjids, uh, LA, Isla LA, uh, Masjid, uh, Sabur in Las Vegas under the leadership of Imam Fatim, uh, the Masjid Muhammad in Atlantic City under the leadership of uh, Sheikh uh, Amin Muhammad, uh, Masjid uh, in the Atlanta uh, Mosque under the leadership of Imam Musa uh, Rasulina. His name's escaping, I'm embarrassed. Uh, Suleiman, Imam Suleiman. Uh, and there are a few others, Imam Hamza Perez, uh, one of our Puerto Rican Imams. Collectively, they feed 2,000 people a week. If they had support, they could feed 10,000 people. 
they have the infrastructure and there's the need. The need is there. They have to turn people away. Imam Qasim Khan in Houston, Texas, they have food trucks that go into the neighborhood to feed people. They have a health clinic. And, and, but Imam Qasim has to spend half of his time fundraising to keep the operation going. So look at Masjid Tawheed in Houston and write them a check. Like share the wealth and empower. You don't have to go in with your own program. All of these masajid, they have programs. They have functional programs. So they're not asking for someone to come and give seed money. The seed money's already been, been given. They're, they're asking to support them so they can take things to another level. And I think wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, as a, a so-called immigrant or second generation or first generation uh, Muslim, look for these local efforts and initiatives and then help provide uh, financial and human resources to help them move to another level. And I think that's, that's where, that's, that's the role of, of fulfillment. And in doing that, you're, you're supporting black lives not just black Muslim lives, you're supporting, you're helping to feed people in some of our most distressed communities that are generally qualified as food deserts. You're helping to, to provide people with primary medical care and access to physicians and dentists uh, at a primary care level that they probably, if it weren't for that intervention and support, they wouldn't have uh, any primary medical care. So, that, that's a tremendous opportunity and something practical that, that everyone can do. Also, I think we have to begin to think in visionary sense. One of the things Malcolm said, and it's very famous, he said, perhaps if the white man in America can learn Islam, then Islam can remove the racism from the hearts. And to paraphrase him, but I'm sure most of you are familiar, familiar with that passage in his autobiography. And, and so how do we put that message out? We, we're not, I'm not talking about if, if you're an, an immigrant Muslim, you have to contemplate going down to the mall and handing out what is Islam pamphlets. I'm talking about let's develop the infrastructure through our unified effort and through our coordination to develop a Muslim satellite channel, like Pat Robertson's 700 Club. Let's have a Muslim satellite channel where we're broadcasting the message of Islam and the good of Islam to people across this country, narrow casting the message for individual communities. And so Appalachia, the, the so-called hillbillies, they have their message and, and, and we're empowering our hillbilly Muslims they're, they're hillbilly Muslims. They're Muslims from Appalachia. They're Muslims from these communities. Let's empower them. Let's, uh, I, some of you might remember a brother, he was formerly in the Ku Klux Klan. He took Shahada in prison because a Muslim brother helped him in, 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 in ways that, that were very, very meaningful. And he, he hesitated at first because the, the Nation of Islam's influence at that time was so strong, he didn't think a white person could be a Muslim. But he became a Muslim, he left the Klan, and he wanted to go back to his people and, and help 
and teach them Islam. And he would set up a booth in the ISNA convention every year and get no support. So we have to find those individuals and support them and empower them. They know what to do. There was a, a, a motorcycle uh, gang Muslim. I knew a few, a couple of them, in fact. But this one, they have this huge uh, motorcycle convention in North or South Dakota every year. He wanted to get a big tent and have dawah pamphlets and invite all of his motorcycle nation to Islam. Couldn't get any support. And, and think of the implications of that. A lot of the people who might now be storming these state houses might be Muslim. When Allah desires something, he but says, be and it is. He couldn't get any support. And so look for these organizations. Look for these uh, individuals. Look for, for the imams. Look for the communities and support them. Support them with physical, human, and financial resources. Pro support them by providing platforms to very promising up-and-coming young speakers. Let them speak to you young people. The, to your young people, believe me, your young people will re relate to them more than they might relate to you because your young people are listening to Killer Mike and they're listening to, to the, the, the African-American rappers. And so when someone comes out of that community, they might immediately relate to them. And so give these young imams, give the young scholars, give the up and coming individuals. Look at, look at the impact that our dear sister Aisha Prime has had on the wider community, including there in New York. Now she's at NYU. Where did she come from? She came from the African-American community. But she was given a platform at Darul Hijra. And so the, the talent, the dynamism that she has was given a platform by an immigrant, uh, predominantly immigrant community. And so now she's a household name who's influencing the young people, especially our, our young, young sisters in phenomenal ways. So give platforms to people. Provide resources to projects. Those are all practical things that can easily be done and that others have done. So you don't even have to re re reinvent the wheel. You just make a few phone calls, inshallah. Exactly, Imam. What I, what I really appreciate what you said is that you did not even mention anything about rhetoric. You did not mention that you want people to speak and to defend. It's so um, significant what you said, I, and I think that shows kind of the visionary view that you have, which is the, the, the capacity building of, of the black Muslim community, how words are not enough. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, and then you elaborated in this earlier, it's not about just being online and say black lives matter and, and, and being supportive. And that's, of course, that's very important. But I think what you touched upon is, is, very, is very important, which is, unfortunately, it's forgotten which is the actually investing and spending in, in, the, in, in, the, in the Muslim black institutions that will be able to help uh, equip uh, that community and, and make it thrive and make it being able 
uh, to be a leading force in the, uh, in the black community and the society at large. I know we've uh, up to two hours now, so I'm just gonna ask uh, one last question and then inshallah, I'll give you uh, time to rest. I know you had a very uh, busy weekend, Jazakallah khair again for being with us and I and appreciate you taking the time and speaking and, and looking at the views and looking at the comments. It, it's very obvious that Alhamdulillah people are, are eager to hear from leaders like you um, to explain and give them context and give them hope for the future. The last question is, 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 uh, uh, is, is just as you mentioned, just to be a little bit positive, even though what we're seeing the oppression that our brothers and sisters are going through is not something positive, but how do you imagine this movement, this movement of black liberation or black empowerment or justice for the black folks? How do you imagine this movement uh, thriving and, and, and solving this issue? Because clearly we talked about it and you touched upon it beautifully, historically, politically, religiously, spiritually. It's not just a, a, a legal issue. It's, it's, a, it's a huge issue that is rooted in the society. How do you imagine the future? How do you imagine the movement bringing about mm -hmm. justice, equality, and freedom uh, to, to the Black community? I think that if, if we can all come together at this moment and be, remain focused on the problem, and, and there are a lot of forces that urge us to, to not be focused. I think you, you alluded to one of those uh, earlier with the protest and the, the burning and uh, the violence. That people, you see, and, and forget, no, this isn't about uh, burning buildings. And the buildings aren't burning because someone just woke up some, one day and said, let's, let's burn a building. Let's say someone genuinely anger, angry and not some provocateur. All this is happening because a, a grown black man, George Floyd, was senselessly and sadistically murdered before the eyes of the world with brazen, casual impunity. That's why everything else is happening. And, and so we have to keep our eyes on the prize and, and, and not be distracted and deterred uh, by these uh, peripheral issues that are significant, no doubt, but they're still peripheral. The, the core issue is the murder of an innocent, um, unarmed black man for allegedly purchasing food with a counterfeit bill. And then, then, then I very quickly, because I, I definitely need to get some rest, but I, I need to say this because it's something that we talked about before the program. And I think it, I would be remiss not to mention it uh, a lot of uh, store owners, because this this uh, this incident started the the fake bill uh, was presented in a Palestinian Muslim store there in Minneapolis, uh, and a lot of those stores they sell alcohol. A lot of those stores sell pornography. A lot of those stores sell marijuana wrapping paper. Uh, a lot of these stores sell pickled pig feet. A lot of these stores uh, contribute to the reality of food deserts where there's no 
fresh produce. There are no fresh fruits. Uh, that, and that's true. A lot of these stores don't hire uh, local young people uh, to, to provide jobs. But this store was not one of those. And if there are any rumors out there, I, I've spoken repeatedly to people very close to the situation there. The owner was beloved and highly respected. Uh, the owner uh, contributed very heavily to the local economy in positive ways. He, the owner, they did not sell alcohol in their store. The owner is paying for the funeral of George Floyd. This is the information I was given from someone very close to the situation. So it's not good to overly generalize, but there are uh, Muslim store owners, corner store owners, and many uh, African-American and other poor neighborhoods who are very exploitative. And that has to stop. And we have to step to them and encourage them to stop selling alcohol, encourage them to hire one or two uh, young people from the, from the local community, encourage them to, to play a, a very proactive and positive role in our communities so that it, it becomes more difficult for someone to drive a wedge between the African-American community uh, in general, the African-American Muslim community specifically, and communities whose members have uh, uh, an immediate connection with a foreign land. So I think that's very important for us uh, to, to mention. So I think if we keep our eye on the prize, if we understand this is about the continued uh, atrocities and brutalities, again, that we see very prominently featured in the media uh, concerning African-Americans. But generally, this is an issue that transcends our community. And we have to bring everyone together on board to tackle this issue. If we can develop transracial uh, coalitions to address this issue, we will prevail. And I think we'll be able to, to uh, rid ourselves of the mentality, the attitudes, and the institutions that perpetuate these atrocities. Thank you so much, Imam. That was that was uh, beautifully said, and, and may Allah accept from you. And I and I think yeah. it's for us as a Islamic Leadership Council of New York. We've been working with our major organizations uh, like Mana, Mass, uh, Care. Um, Ikna, Muna, and, and you know, to, to try to get everybody on the same page, as you mentioned, to build coalitions, to help building or investing in institutions, uh, the black Muslim institutions, and most likely to work into in, uh, intra campaigns for our communities to, to educate them on these issues, specifically reaching out to Muslim business owners in these inner cities and, and try to educate them and, 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 and encourage them to, to do the things that you mentioned. And I, and I highly appreciate that. And I, I, and I hope that this is an opportunity uh, or this moment can serve, can turn into a positive moment or a pivotal moment for our community uh, to start working together. Uh, and for, for specifically the people who are able to, 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 to do some positive impact on, on the black community, specifically these business owners as we talked about and other uh, Muslim organizations that, I can, that can afford to invest and help 
uh, our brothers and sisters in the in the in the black uh, black Muslim community and black community at large. Again, I, I just want to take this opportunity again to thank you so much, and 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 may Allah accept from you, and may Allah reward you, and bless you, and protect you. Uh, you've done an amazing job today, and and I know uh, as soon as I spoke to Imam Talib, and, and, and you know we, you spoke, you were ready um, to come, and I know you had a family situation over the weekend, so Jazakallah khair for taking the time and being with us, and you know I, I hope that this serves as a not just a, a lecture and a webinar uh, to help our community and make them understand the context behind what's going on, but also serves as a as a as a visionary uh, lecture for few people who can benefit from it, and and that will make them change and help them change their mind to the better on a spiritual level, but also in an activism uh, level where they can actually, as you mentioned, as we discussed, be able to benefit from Islam personally, spiritually, but also take what they learn take the transformation that will Islam will bring to them to bring it to society and bring it to community. So I thank you so much one more time. And I thank to thank, uh, want to thank our viewers uh, for being with us. Alhamdulillah, we've been consistent throughout and for the people who sent uh, all of these great questions. Um, I, I think I'm done from my end. I just want to give you a last opportunity if you have any last words before we wrap up. But um, I think you've done an amazing job so far, Imam. Alhamdulillah, it's, it's been a great honor. May Allah bless everyone. And uh, may Allah help us to, uh, to realize that no matter what our backgrounds are, we're all on the same team. And inshallah, it's the winning team. So may Allah bless you and your efforts. May Allah bless uh, all of the people involved in this particular uh, webinar. May Allah bless everyone, bless everyone who's... Uh, who's uh, tuned in. And, and it's very important, very important for us to just make sure you're on top of your prayers, take time to pray, take time to, to read your Quran, take time to do a little dhikr. Because if, 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 you, do all of, if you do all of that, even in uh, not as much as you would, would want, I don't think any of us can do as much of, of, of that as we would like. But even a little bit, bit, you'll realize that at the end of the day, you're too blessed to be stressed. Jazakallah khair. Ameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair, Ibrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum.